0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachib, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode of the MBG podcast is made in partnership with Else Nutrition. When it comes to everyday nutrition for your child, keeping things simple is key. Luckily, there are innovative brands like Else Nutrition that make it easy with high quality ingredients, minimal processing, and zero compromising. Their delicious plant-based complete nutrition drink for toddlers is made from familiar and nutritious staples, almonds, buckwheat, and tapioca. Else is organic, dairy, and soy-free, pediatrician-endorsed, and is complete nutrition beyond the first year. Ideal for those looking to avoid dairy or soy, or who are looking for a plant-based formula. It's the only real alternative to dairy-based baby and toddler nutrition. Order yours today. Dr. Julie fouche Erkuyo is a family physician who completed her coursework through the Institute for Functional Medicine. She received her undergrad degree from the University of Michigan in Biomedical Engineering and completed her med school and residency training at the Cleveland Clinic. Julie holds her Master's in Nutrition from Case Western and completed the Integrative Medicine and Residency Curriculum through the University of Arizona. Add to all of that, she is one of the most celebrated CrossFit athletes and an incredible person who's spoken at our Revitalize event. It's an honor to have Julie here today. Julie, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, I'm excited to be here.
0: It's so great to have you. Uh, We love you and your husband and all the amazing work you are doing and congrats on your move to Nashville.
1: Thank you, yes, we're super excited. We're official, we just got our driver's licenses the other day, so.
0: Oh, wow. Well, one of our favorite cities, and uh, we we love you guys, and we love specifically in our world today your message around metabolic health and in the context of COVID. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna start there for for this podcast and start with uh, an Instagram post, and where you said focusing on masks. Testing vaccines and medications while metabolic dysfunction is running rampant in our country is like trying to find seatbelts for the people in a car that is driving recklessly down the highway. Yes, we all need seatbelts. Got it, got it, you know, got a distance, got a got mask, got to do all that stuff. So, yes, we all need seatbelts, but focusing on getting the car to slow down and drive more responsibly will probably save many more lives in the long run. I remember reading that and saying, "Wow." So, can you unpack that for us?
1: Yeah. Um I mean, I think it's it's just been so interesting to see this pandemic unfold and, you know, obviously we're still learning more every single day about, you know, how this virus is changing and the impacts that it has. We don't know the impacts that it has over the long term, but some of the things that we are seeing that, you know, keep being repeated over and over again in several countries and different studies is that people who are metabolically unhealthy seem to be much more at risk of getting very severely ill when they do get infected with the virus. So they're much more likely to have to be hospitalized, more likely to have to be in the ICU or need a ventilator or even, you know, die from the virus. And so that really made me think about, and I think a lot of people are thinking about, you know, how can we protect ourselves? Of course, we want to protect ourselves with masks. And if a vaccine comes, you know, that may provide protection and social distancing, you know, that's going to protect us from maybe getting the virus. But, you know, even if we do everything perfectly, there's still a chance we could get it. And I know if I get it, I want to make sure that my body is as resilient as possible so that hopefully I'll be one of those people who has very mild symptoms or is asymptomatic. But, you know, unfortunately, like you said, from the post, our country as a whole is very metabolically unhealthy. So there was this statistic actually shocked me that I just learned over the past few months was only 12.2% of our population in the U.S. is actually metabolically healthy or has optimal metabolic health. And we'll go through like all the components of what that means in a minute. But 12.2%, that means... 88% 88% of people in some way are metabolically unhealthy, and potentially that increases their risk of getting really sick when they do get this virus.
0: And so, there's so much commentary on on what health means and metabolic health, and and you're going to walk through that. But you know, it used to be that let's say we were a little bit unhealthy, and say, okay, like I'm fine. Uh, I'll be you know 20 years from now, 30 years from now. i'll I'll worry about it maybe i'll you know i'll have to uh, take a pharmaceutical maybe i can address it then maybe there's surgery but you just kind of like put it off into the it's something that may hurt me in the future whereas today being that unhealthy with covid could could Take your life, and it's a lot more serious, and it needs to come to the forefront. And so much of the conversation, while all those things are important, critical, and yes, you know, you're going grocery shopping, wear a mask, you know, social distancing, we have to do all these things. But there hasn't been enough of a conversation. To your point, we can do everything, and, and sometimes, and you hear stories of people they've done everything right, and yet they still get it. And there's only so much you can control there, and so there hasn't been enough of a conversation of these are the things we can do. Uh, to be metabolically healthy, and and so like let's start there. Like, what is this? Was all I was shocked too by these numbers, and I'm like, what is you know? So, what is optimal metabolic health, and can you like walk through the the markers, if you will, or how we measure that?
1: Sure. So, you know, when I when you think about metabolic dysfunction, we're really just talking about abnormal regulation of our blood sugar and our lipids within our bloodstream, and then this state of chronic systemic inflammation or chronic inflammation. And so there's a syndrome called metabolic syndrome, which basically defines five different markers that, you know, when people have any one or more of these, put them at higher risk of having complications down the road, like heart disease, stroke, heart attacks, diabetes, those sorts of things. And so basically, all it is is a clustering of these risk factors. And the interesting thing about metabolic syndrome that you kind of just hinted at was that they, I think they even used to call it the silent killer. Maybe that's blood pressure, but, but because it's so, it sort of smolders for so long, it can be starting maybe in your thirties or your forties, and you don't even know that you have a problem until it's diagnosed as high blood pressure or diabetes or, or you have a heart attack suddenly when you're, you know, 50 or 60. And so that's why I think for, you know, we have such an epidemic of this, you know, heart disease and metabolic disease here is because it is silent for so many years. And because, you know, our healthcare system's not great at picking it up early, it usually picks it up when it's, you know, already been going for decades, um, and our lifestyle just really promotes sort of this metabolic dysfunction, our, our general um, modern lifestyle. So you know, it starts out, the, the five factors, which you asked, sorry, I'll get back to your question. Um, The five risk factors, you can kind of think of them too like it's not like you're, you're just trying to diagnose this disease. You're just trying to look at what's going on in the body and get a sense of is there something that's out of whack. So you can kind of think of it like you're looking in a house and each one of these five things is five different windows and it allows you to look inside the house through five different views and see is there some disease going on in there? Is there some inflammation going on in there? So the first one is waist circumference. Um, so for men greater than 40 inches of waist circumference and for women greater than 35 inches would be considered a risk factor. And that's really just measured, um, you know, at your waist, right above your hip bones, usually at the most narrow part of the waist. But, um, as metabolic syndrome sort of takes its toll, gaining weight in that abdominal region can add a lot more risk. Um, then you have blood pressure, so blood pressure over 135, over 80 would be a risk factor. And then you have lipid abnormalities, so triglycerides over 150, um, or HDL, which is normally considered your good cholesterol, less than 40 for men or less than 50 for women. And then your last one is your blood sugar. So having a fasting blood sugar greater than 100, which is a sign of some sort of, um, insulin or blood sugar problems.
0: And only 12% of us check all those five boxes. Check
1: all those five boxes. So technically, to be diagnosed with, you know, in medicine, we have all these technical definitions. To be diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, you you would meet, need to meet three of those five criteria. Um, but in that study where they looked at 12.2% of people, that was the number of people who had zero out of five of those criteria. So they may not all have metabolic syndrome, but they have at least one. And they really do tend to cluster together. So if you have one, you probably have another one or before long, it's not going to be Long before you get another one of those risk factors
0: so there's metabolic syndrome and there's also metabolic dysfunction so c- can we talk about I know it's a little bit of semantics but what is metabolic dysfunction and wh- how do we know and walk us through the, the phases of that
1: yeah so you know metabolic syndrome is just a way to sort of classify metabolic dysfunction but in general metabolic dysfunction is any abnormal regulation of the blood sugar and the lipids and this chronic state of inflammation that then leads to disease later on. And like we were talking about, there really are kind of three phases. And this is why I think it's so hard for people to realize or to try to be motivated to make changes is because it can go on as a silent, in a silent phase for so long. So the first phase really is silent. It's where You don't even really know that anything's going on, but some of these processes are starting in your body. And so it goes on silently for, it can go on for many, many years and you don't even necessarily know that anything is wrong. And then the second phase is really this chronic disease phase where maybe, you know, you get a work health screening and you find out your blood pressure is a little high or your cholesterol is a little high, or you get diagnosed with, um, diabetes, or fatty liver or, or as another disease, you probably don't really feel any different, but you've been diagnosed with this quote unquote chronic disease. Um, maybe you get put on some medication to help manage that disease or to help kind of make your numbers look good. Um, and then really that can continue again for many years until the third phase, which is really where this starts to impact quality of life. And that's when I think people often realize, wow, I need to make some changes. But by that time, this could have been going on for 10, 15, 20 years, this process. And that third phase is really um, where you have a lot of morbidity and mortality. So it starts to affect kidneys. Maybe you have kidney failure, you have to be on dialysis. Maybe it affects the blood flow in your limbs and maybe you have a limb amputation or limb infection or neuropathy, um, blindness. Um, heart disease, heart attacks, strokes. Those are sort of the end stages of this process um, that is really what we're all trying to avoid.
0: And so you mentioned cholesterol as one of the uh, markers, if you will, but you spoke about good cholesterol being too low. What What about bad cholesterol being too high?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So in metabolic syndrome, really the only two Markers that are looked at for cholesterol or for lipids are triglycerides and HDL. And those are often seen, they correlate with um, glucose or insulin um, sensitivity problems. So, you know, one of the markers we can look at is a triglyceride to HDL ratio. The LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, is associated with increased cardiovascular risk, and that's sort of treated separately. <laughs> like, you know, in medicine, we kind of try to make everything super complicated, and that's sort of treated separately. You know, the decision about whether or not to go on cholesterol medication um, really, in large part, has to do with do you have heart disease, or do you have diabetes, or do you have elevated LDL cholesterol or bad cholesterol. But um, you don't always see that correlating as much with the uh, um, the insulin or the glucose blood sugar regulation problems.
0: So it's also interesting. You you know you brought up waist circumference, and I think th- when we talk about metabolic syndrome, there tends to be a lot of focus on weight loss. Yeah. But I think it's fascinating. You say that, and I quote: "Weight is just another symptom of metabolic dysfunction." So like like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. So can, can you just talk about that? Weight weight being a symptom.
1: Yeah, I think that's in part, you know, why it's been so difficult and why it's such a problem in our countries, because for so long, we've put the focus on weight and trying to exercise more and eat less. And that's, you know, all we need to do. And it's this willpower problem. Um, But really, like, if you look at the pathophysiology of how this whole process evolves, you know, the weight gain is just another symptom of this underlying process of abnormal metabolism, and abnormal blood sugar regulation and inflammation. And it's just another symptom. So it's like one of these five things. It's like having high blood pressure or having low HDL or having high blood sugar, you know, weight or increased abdominal circumference is one of those other symptoms. But if we treat the underlying root cause through nutrition, through exercise, through lifestyle, then typically, you know, the weight tends to come off. But if we only are focusing on the weight, we're gonna sort of miss the forest for the trees
0: so looking in other words looking great and having a low bmi and the perfect waist circumference does not mean you're metabolically healthy period
1: that's true actually um 20 of people who are in normal weight actually are still metabolically unhealthy so that's something that's interesting too you may think well i have a normal weight my bmi is fine so i must be healthy But in fact, especially looking at different cultures, too, like especially um, looking in like India or China, their BMI cutoffs are even lower because a lot of people um, from India or China tend to still have a lower BMI, but they could have metabolic dysfunction um, brewing.
0: So it's funny. So, I, you know, yes, I'm a little bit of a genetic freak because I'm six foot seven um, and I've got crazy uh, homocysteine. I don't know if I... At one time it was 63 and I got it to 12 through supplementation and so forth. But at any rate, I used to eat a ton of meat and then I kind of like almost went pescatarian. And then a couple of years ago, I started to eat a lot like heavy, heavy, heavy meat, like almost like hardcore keto, probably like I wasn't having a lot of vegetables. And out of nowhere, I was like the fittest I had ever been my, my BMI, I was like, like probably like just under 10% body fat. It was like beyond like so fit. Um, but for the first time, like I could recall, I had high blood pressure. Really? Yeah. Like I started to go in the one, like one forties. And then I like, I went to Frank Lipman who we talked about and I just cut, cut down on the meat consumption and I dropped 25 points in like two weeks. Wow. And so I was like, oh, wow, like something changed with me specifically, like biologically in my fort, like also I'm 45 now. Like I just, the way I processing meat, I was just having way too much. But like, my point is, is like, I was incredibly, everything was great, except, whoa, whoa, what's going on over here? <laughs> right. I would be metabolically healthy. And if you looked at me, you'd be like, oh, it looks amazing. But like metabolically unhealthy.
1: That's so true. That's why you, I mean, all of these things you have to really take a look under the hood it's not just about what you look like but you know really like getting your blood work done and checking your blood pressure and really seeing what's going on inside because typically if your body is thriving and healthy all these things should move together but if one of them's out of whack then probably there's something going on
0: and i I think it's such an important point this isn't this isn't like uh this isn't just about weight loss like you got to look under the hood and and so you brought up Two, two key points one nutrition the other being lifestyle and so look we've said this like we believe we believe in the blend of mental physical spiritual emotional environmental well-being mind body green one word but with that being said we also believe that health begins on your plate and nutrition is a, is a cornerstone and so you know you've talked about three important factors when it comes to nutrition quality and i love this quality quantity and timing and in that exact order so can you talk about why that order matters and, and your philosophy when it comes to nutrition here and ha- how we can harness the power of nutrition for optimal metabolic health
1: sure so i sort of um came to that or i will put a disclaimer on it i think nutrition- all
0: good all good disclaimer all good
1: <laughs> um you know, every nutrition is amazing because every person is so individual. And like you said, you know, it really takes an individualized approach approach and it may change throughout the course of your life. But, um, I have just found that for so many people that order tends to work really well. And, you know, that's not to say that you can't start somewhere else. So a lot of times for, for someone who really needs to make a change to their nutrition, you know, anywhere that they want to start is a good place to start. But in general, I like to start with quality first Just because, um, you know, the impact that food has on our biochemistry and on, you know, the way that our brain works and our cravings work makes it really hard to fight against. So, so many people, I think, try to start with quantity. They're just like, I'm going to track my food. I'm going to do my macros and I can eat whatever I want as long as they fit in my macros. Or, you know, I'm going to restrict a certain amount to a certain amount of calories because I'm trying to lose weight. But if you're still eating poor quality food while you're restricting your food, you're going to be still sending your body all of these signals, you know, if you're eating a lot of sugar or processed food, you're sending your body these signals that I'm still hungry and I want to keep eating more because that's what that food was designed to do. But if you focus on quality first and don't even worry about tracking or how much you're eating, your body does tend to regulate your food. Appetite much better and after I think if I'm sure if you've experienced and many people listening have experienced if you do a, a Period where you're really dialing in your food quality and you're eating only whole foods and you're not eating sugar You're not eating anything processed after a week or two um, Your body really starts to feel different and your brain starts to feel different and I know for myself I feel like okay I can actually make clear decisions about what I want to eat now instead of feeling like my brain is hijacked by the sugar I just ate and I like can't control the fact that I want to go eat some more sugar or chips or whatever it is. So by starting with quality first and eating whole nutrient dense foods, you're giving your body all the nutrients that it needs. And you're also helping, um, to kind of break that addictive cycle that we have to sugar and processed foods. And then from there, you know, I found, you know, I did that first and I found after a period of time, you know, it is still possible if you want to really dial things in. um, It is still possible to overeat on good quality food, especially if you're eating like, I don't know, almond butter and avocados all day. (laughs) So, you know, there does come a time where maybe you want to dial things in more with quantity. And there's varying degrees of how you can do that. You know, for some people just using a plate method of like, I'm going to fill half my plate with vegetables and a quarter with some protein and a quarter with some type of um, you know, starchy vegetable or or something like that, or healthy fat, or, um, you can dial in more specifically and actually measure the amount of food that you're eating. If that's something that you want to do, of course, keeping in mind if it's doing it in a healthy way versus, um, especially someone who has a history with eating disorders, you know, that's probably something that you want to avoid. But, um, I, I typically like to start just by measuring protein, because, you know, protein is often something that people are not getting enough of. So even if you just measure and make sure you're getting enough protein every day, and then try to eat the rest of your food as vegetables. Um, Or from there, um, if you wanted to measure like total calorie intake or macros or things like that, you can get more specific. And then timing is a third one, um, which really just helps us to dial in even more and optimize, especially for metabolic health, it can have a lot of impacts because our bodies were not designed to be eating 24/7 around the clock and you know a lot of us it's almost what we do especially if we get home late at night we have a snack before bed and then we're up early again and we're eating something in the morning you know it can be really easy to be eating almost around the clock and i think there was even a study that looked at at least uh, half of adults eat 15 hours at least 15 hours a day which is kind of a lot so just by restricting, you know, your eating time window through tw- in 12 hours, which is very reasonable to do. You know, if you eat breakfast at 8 a.m., stop eating by 8 p.m., um, that can have a big impact. Just by allowing your gut to rest, by allowing all these metabolic pathways that are normally activated when you're processing that food to sort of relax and go into more of a repair and rest and digest state, um, that can really go a long way as far as improving metabolism and, of course, you can get even more specific with that or you can get go even further with that and do intermittent fasting or periodic fasting or, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do it. But we know that having some periods of fasting or time-restricted feeding do have a positive impact on things like obesity and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and um, all sorts of metabolic syndrome um, aspects.
0: So is there one diet or nutrition philosophy that you think aligns best with the nutrition guidelines we should be following for optimal metabolic health or berries or blend or what's your take
1: yeah um i think it's it's challenging because like i said there's not one diet for everyone so everyone's going to be a little bit different but i do think sort of a especially someone who's got metabolic syndrome or who has metabolic dysfunction, making sure that we're not eating too much heavy refined carbohydrates is going to be the key. So really a generally a paleo diet is pretty good. Um, and even for someone who's really far down that road, maybe they have diabetes or on insulin, maybe they have, um, cardiovascular disease, potentially even using a keto diet as a therapeutic, um, You know tool for a period of time could be helpful because that's really the extreme of restricting the carbohydrates and replacing them more with healthy fats Um, and we've seen data at least early data that shows that it can improve um, metabolic uh, syndrome markers so i would say that'd be the more extreme but the sort of middle of the road a good paleo diet is probably you know thinking about eating a good portion of protein or you know healthy source of meat with The rest being primarily vegetables.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, so how do you, you know, paleo is almost like a nebulous term right now. So, like, how do you define, like, when you think of paleo, what does that look like? Is it vegetables and lean meats? Just What does it mean for you?
1: I think, so I actually correlate, it's not, it's not the same, exactly the same, but in CrossFit, we have a, a nutrition prescription, which is basically eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, and no sugar. And I think that really sums it up well. It's not exactly a paleo diet because you don't get into all the details of like, is a legume okay? I, that's
0: where I was going to go, legume.
1: Those to me, are like small details. <laughs> in general, if you're eating, you know, a small a portion of protein and then you're eating the rest of your plate is plants, you're probably doing a good job. Unless it's like the rest of your plate is two sweet potatoes. <laughs> yeah, I
0: hear you. Uh, and what about, you know, we had Kate Shanahan on the, on the podcast and she, you know, and and she's not alone, uh, has a very strong opinion on vegetable oils and, and what they're doing with metabolic health. What's your take on, on vegetable oils?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that it's one of those things that is so, um, rampant. Like we don't realize it's in so much of our food. And even, I mean, even if you go to a restaurant and you get oil and vinegar for your salad dressing, even if it's, they say it's olive oil, like half of it might be mixed with vegetable oil. So it's something that seems to sneak into our diets, even when we're trying to be really healthy. And I think that that does can have a negative impact. Um, and so I think focusing on, you know, avocado oils, olive oils, coconut oils, those types of things, um are definitely more helpful
0: yeah it's one to your point I, I remember after the podcast you know i had always known about vegetable oils but after the podcast i did with her it really hit me and i started looking around and i'm like oh my god they're everywhere
1: no it's amazing everywhere even, like i think i remember even in the in a cafeteria i was in there was a bottle that said olive oil but then you look at it and it's actually half olive oil half canola oil and you're like okay <laughs> read your labels it's, and,
0: and and canola oil is often described or as rap seed oil yeah
1: yeah so
0: it's the number two ingredient in oatly
1: everything is so sneaky i mean first you think <laughs> sugar is sneaky now you have to read your oils. <laughs>
0: yeah and, and so like how, how would you you know for someone listening is just like oh i'm overwhelmed by by all this how, if you were to just simplify your advice on nutrition, uh, what would that be?
1: I mean, I'm a huge fan of Michael Pollan. <laughs>
0: yeah, me too.
1: Yeah, I think I love all of his quotes are great. I mean, eat.
0: Eat food, not too much, mostly plants.
1: Mostly plants. Eat something, you know, if your great-great-grandmother wouldn't recognize it as food, probably not food. You know, if we can just focus on eating real food, shopping around the perimeter of the grocery store, eating stuff that doesn't come out of a box or a package or a label, um, eating something that looks like it's in its natural state. Um, even now, I mean, so many of the foods that we eat, like, I I don't know, I was just looking in my fridge and we do a pretty good job of keeping real food, but I have, you know, a loaf of gluten-free bread. And it's like, that's still processed in a way. You know, if I was going to be really optimal about this, I would probably not try to buy things without you know that are coming from a package
0: well i have to ask what is your favorite gluten-free bread
1: um this one is called seeds of change i think it's yeah. a flex yeah i really like that one and then i'm also a huge fan of these unbuns they're they used to be called keto buns but yeah i love those i think those are some of the closest ones i've found to like regular bread that are still you know gluten-free and lower in carbs
0: okay i'm gonna have to check that one out uh <laughs> So we covered nutrition. What about lifestyle factors that are driving metabolic health?
1: Yeah, you bring up a great point because really, you know, the the main trigger that triggers this whole cascade of metabolic dysfunction is the prolonged excess carbohydrate intake. But there's so many other factors that sort of play a role in what degree, um, you know, to what degree and when that happens. So things like our sleep. I mean, our sleep has a huge impact. We know that even being restricted on sleep for a night or for a week can result in um, decreased insulin sensitivity. So, if you're sleep deprived, even if you eat, you know, the same amount of carbohydrates that you normally would, your body's not going to be able to process that as well, and that can contribute to this cascade of metabolic dysfunction. um, Especially if you're sleep deprived over, you know, weeks and years. So, sleep is a huge one that I think you Know is often pushed to the side, um, especially in our culture where we think, you know, oh, I don't need enough sleep, or I can, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or there's too many things to do. And, and it's just so important for our health in so many different ways. It's a big one. Uh, stress is another huge one, of course, because that can also impact all of these factors. And it just adds more fuel to this fire of chronic inflammation if we're in a constant fight or flight mode. So, having time to, you know, down-regulate, go into more of a parasympathetic state, that's what's going to help our body rest and recover from all this inflammation. Um, You know, our genetics do play a role, more the epigenetics, like how all these lifestyle factors are flowing over our genes and changing the expression of our genes to promote health and optimal metabolism versus, you know, if we're having a poor lifestyle, they're activating those genes that, that are going to contribute to metabolic dysfunction, um, and then you know our gut microbiome plays a role too, which is largely influenced by our lifestyle factors, by what we're eating and stress and things like that.
0: Well, I'm so glad you mentioned sleep and stress because it tends to be a vicious cycle. When yeah. you know you're not sleeping, you're stressed, and you make poor decisions with food, and that adds to the anxiety, and so it's just this vicious cycle that, that's just hard to get out of. I'm like we, we've all been stressed or low on sleep and what do you reach for
1: that's yeah that was residency for me in a nutshell like you are do a night shift you didn't get much sleep you're feeling stressed out someone brings in donuts to the hospital in the morning like it is really all you can do to resist eating that and I'm not gonna say that I've resisted every single time so you know it is a vicious cycle and we know too when you're when you're sleep deprived like they've done plenty of studies if you're sleep deprived you eat more, you know, just by like natural eating, you tend to eat more. Um, I think like 250 calories on average per day more when you're sleep deprived and you tend to crave those, you know, processed high carbohydrate, really, um, energy dense foods, because that's your body's signals kicking in. And it's that, um, you have like a decrease in sort of your inhibition that you normally would use when you're selecting foods.
0: You've got that great donut shop in Nashville too. I think it's like Five Sisters. I think is the name yeah. of it. Daughters or something. Five daughters. Five daughters. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: I've been oh.
0: It. <laughs> oh yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's just if you take a step back, you know, we're at we're at this. It, it's, it's we're an interesting time. It's a confusing time. And again, you know, where we started this conversation today, so much of the message. Around COVID is around you know, masks and social distancing, and all those things work. But you know there hasn't been the conversation around you know eating healthier, metabolic health, taking this time to 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 use this time in, in a way that's that's beneficial for overall health and well being. So you know if we were to put you on CNN and Fox, so you could reach everyone, where no matter where you're on the political spectrum, like what what would your message be to, to everyone right now?
1: Well, I hope that we would all use this as a wake up call. So, you know, for me, one of the most, the most terrible things was going through, you know, seeing someone in the hospital who just had a heart attack and they're scared for their Like they've never experienced anything like that. They're scared for their life. They're sort of like seeing their life left before their eyes and they're realizing, wow, you know, I've been living my life too stressed out, not getting enough sleep eating like crap, maybe smoking, I need to make some changes because now I, you know, my life is kind of, I'm, I'm facing my mortality and that can often be a trigger for people to really make some dramatic changes and turn their life around. But up until that point for, you know, the 10, 15, 20 years before that, you know, they never had such a strong emotional trigger to be able to make those changes. I'm sure they knew smoking was not great for my health you know, eating fast food is not great for my health. I need, probably need to sleep more. Stress is not great. But they didn't have like a real trigger to actually help them make those changes. And so what I'm hoping is that for all of us, just the emotion of this whole time, this pandemic, I mean, seeing it unfold, I think it's really made this much more of an urgent issue. And I think especially if you are facing some metabolic dysfunction, hopefully this can be a wake up call because like you said, it could be, you know, you get, you get the virus and you're in the hospital or you're in the ICU a week from now or two weeks from now. Like we don't know, even if we do everything right, there's still a chance that we could catch it. It's, you know, it's a pandemic, it's all over the world. And so hopefully this is that reminder to all of us that, you know, we're not invincible. And so everything that we can do, the way that we live our lives, the way that we Um, The decisions that we make can help us be more resilient against this virus. But also in doing so, we're going to be more resilient against everything, you know, against anything that life throws uh, throws our way. If we get the flu, if we, you know, get in a car accident, if we, you know, get cancer or anything else, we have an injury. Our bodies are going to be so much more resilient and better able to respond and withstand that stressor. But this is just something that's so front of mind right now for everyone that I hope we can use it. Um, to create some positive change on an individual level, but hopefully too, it will motivate more systemic change in terms of our healthcare system, our food system, and just the way that we kind of view dealing with some of these health conditions.
0: Well, specifically the healthcare system, what change do you want to see there?
1: I mean, on a large scale, big, qu-
0: big question. <laughs> yeah,
1: on a large scale, it's not. It's maybe not just the healthcare system that needs to be making this change, but it's a focus on creating health instead of just putting band-aids on disease. I mean, this is a perfect time for functional medicine to thrive because we're seeing that, you know, unless we address the root cause, it doesn't really change our susceptibility to, you know, getting really ill with the virus. So for example, you know, you may have diabetes and you may be on three different medicines and you may have high blood pressure. You I mean, you may be on some medicines that help control your numbers right so your blood sugar looks good your blood pressure looks good when you go to the doctor they say hey it looks like you're doing great but just because you're on those medicines and your numbers look good doesn't mean we've addressed the root cause and so you still have this underlying pathology and this underlying inflammation that then makes you more susceptible to getting really ill if you do get the coronavirus or any other virus
0: So, you know, you're at the forefront of functional medicine and we're, 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 you know, flip side, we're in an exciting time. There are a lot lot of, you know, new and interesting science and studies being done. Like, what are you paying attention to? Is there anything that you've seen recently in terms of developing science where you said, oh, this is cool. Like, let's see what's happening there.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think all of the fasting has been a, a hot topic in the past couple of years. And I think we're seeing more and more um, how that can be used for health. And especially talking about metabolic health, it's such a easy tool to implement, right? Like we talk about eating whole foods and doing all this stuff, which may be, not be accessible to people depending on, you know, costs and, and, you know, how close you are to getting to being able to get real food. But fasting is something that we can implement anywhere with anyone so many benefits so even if i mean some of the stuff that jason fung is doing with his patients you know he's not even having them change their diet they're still eating pretty poor quality food on the in the times when they are eating but because of those fasting periods it's having a really big impact on their metabolic health reversing diabetes and so i think that's a tool that on a large scale could have a really big impact and is very accessible
0: and it's free fasting's free
1: it's so, it's awesome. Right. <laughs> it's cheap <like deep> too. <laughs> Although I know, you know, it's not necessarily feasible for a lot of people with everything that they have going on in their environment. But, um, a lot of these things are very, very accessible.
0: So, you know, are, are you optimistic? You know, what, what are you excited about right now?
1: Yeah, I'm, I am optimistic. I try to tend to be an optimistic person. Um, but, I would have, I guess it's hard to say because it is still early. I I guess I'm just, I wish that we would already be making more bigger efforts in this area by now, but I think that it is still early. We have to remind ourselves that it's only been a few months of this pandemic. And so I'm optimistic that it's going to help us look more critically at how we approach health. Um, And I hope, you know, that this will create a big change in our healthcare system I think right now the healthcare system is still trying to figure out which way is up and which way is down because everything is such a mess with, with dealing with all of this. But I think that I'm encouraged by how many smart people are talking about this and who are really making a push that like so many people have been ready and have been talking about the importance of doing this for so many years. And now this is our opportunity for you know the rest of the world to really listen. So I think that gives me a lot of encouragement.
0: So you said, you know, dealing with all this, I'm curious, my last question, you know, what's your go-to when you're having a, a bad day or a bad moment, what do you do to take care of yourself?
1: Oh gosh. Um, I mean, lately I've just loved getting outside. I, um, moving here to Nashville, we actually have a bigger backyard. So I love that I can like see in the trees and and be outside. For me, that's really, really rejuvenating or going on a hike. Um, working out always helps me to blow off some steam. That still is one of my go-tos. And then just spending time with people, you know, I know I try to keep the people around me, people who are going to help me kind of flip that mindset if I'm having an off day.
0: Well, you, it's, you mentioned people and real connections. I don't know if you saw the, the CDC uh, s- study around uh, suicide a couple of days ago where I think it was 25% of 18 to 24 year olds have had serious thoughts about suicide. I think it was 16% of 25 to 44. Granted it's not, it, 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 it's a sample, but yeah. wow, like the, the, the power of real world emotional connection and the mental health crisis that's a direct result of what we're doing with COVID is pretty scary.
1: It's really scary. And it, I mean, it was already bad. I think even looking at, you know, our youth and our teenagers and the rates of anxiety and, you know, the impact that social media has. And for me, that's very scary. Um, and so this time of, of more isolation and not being able to socially interact and the implications of that over the long term, I think are very scary. But that's, yeah, those are scary numbers. I'm mean, going to have to look at that.
0: Yeah, it was, and it doubled. Uh, I think last year it was like 11%, and four or five years ago I thought it was like 5%. So like it's been, it's been a trend in the wrong way, but then 11 to 25 is pretty, like just like mind-blowing. It, it's just, it's it's terrifying, terrifying. So.
1: We need connection, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: we do. Well, Julie, it was great connecting with you. Thank you for all the good work uh, you and Danny are doing, so thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having me on, this was great.